cliffcentral.com live. It is time now for the burning platform. And this is where we get to discuss some of the most important issues of the week. We've been talking about the floods in KZN for a little while now, and we'll continue to discuss that. But today we'll talk to someone called Ian Schur, who is the CEO of Rescue South Africa, which you can find at rescue-sa.co.za. We'll find out about the work that they do, um, which is just absolutely essential at a time like this. We know how many people have been displaced. We know how many people have lost their lives already. Almost 500 people have been killed in these floods. It's nothing short of a disaster in every sense of that word. We'll talk about that with Ian in a moment. Bakabantu is here with me. If you're wondering where Pumi Mashiko is, she's not feeling well today. She overslept. Her alarm didn't go off. And then she sent me a message to say she's really not feeling great, so she's not going to be joining us today. So for all the people who come just for Pumi, I'm sorry. You're going to have to deal with just me and Bakabantu this morning. Sorry. That's what we got. But I, I know it's sad, guys. I know. We will, we will endeavor to do a professional job for you and, and make sure that you get the information you need. Um, there is obviously uh, there's, there's quite a lot to, to cover this morning. We'll start off by welcoming our guest for the, the first half of this morning's Burning Platform. Here's Ian Scher. Ian, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for making time for us today. How are you? No, I'm very well, and thanks for the opportunity. It's great to see you, Ian. Um, tell us about Rescue South Africa and what you guys do, because unfortunately, most of us only pay attention when there is a disaster and when it's on our own front doorsteps. You have to think about this stuff all year round. What kind of work do you guys at, at Rescue South Africa do? So Rescue South Africa is a voluntary organization. We formed it in 2001 out of emergency service personnel. It, probably more around the, the, the Gauteng area, mm-hmm. so Pretoria and Joburg and, and Western East Rand. Yes. And out of there for the last 20, 22 years, we've responded to disasters around the world. But um, the last number of years, uh, we seem to be quite busy with weather-related incidences from Malawi, Zambia, Mozambique, all the way almost the, along the east coast of of, of Africa. Right. <clears throat> and we've, as a result of that, we've, we've turned out to about four or five different, whether it's cyclones or weather incidences like, like the one, the, the one in KZN that we just, uh, that we've just come back from. So Ian, obviously so, over, the, over the last uh, over the last two years, the the focus has very much been taken uh, by COVID, and and COVID was you know it was declared our longest lasting natural disaster period for what a period of two years, maybe more than two years. So the, the shine kind of came to COVID. I say the shine with my tongue firmly lodged in my cheek, but these these things require fundraising, requires as you say volunteers. Um, and, and sometimes when something like COVID comes along, it distracts everybody from all the other stuff. And suddenly, uh, you know, a flood in Malawi or a cyclone in Madagascar or Mozambique is, is less interesting and holds less of the public attention than something like COVID. Has that been your experience over the last two years? Well, in a way, yes. And yet we've turned out, if I look at it from 2019, there was two cyclones in Mozambique, Idai and Kenneth, mm-hmm. which we turned out to. Then there was Eloise yes. you know, in 2021. There was, there have been four 
uh, cyclones that hit Madagascar and part of Mozambique this year. There was Anna, and then there's now this weather incident that wasn't called a cyclone. Um, so if you count up, you're at four or five or six incidences right almost during this period of COVID. So one of the things is that rest, in order to raise the funds to be able to respond to disasters, Rescue South Africa, uh, in collaboration with Nelson Mandela University and the University of Johannesburg, we train emergency service personnel that are already paramedics to do rescue. So mm-hmm. there are 12 modules of rescue that we teach, and right. the income that we gain from teaching to industry and to fire services and so on, that money gets used for our responses. So obviously when we, during COVID we were severely affected by the fact that we couldn't teach because no one was was doing any of that type of thing. None of the companies were, were doing anything remotely like contact uh, mm. teaching. So it's created for us, uh, really it's made life extremely, extremely difficult. You know, we're living in a time where there's such donor fatigue. There's so, so many NGOs that are relying on the public to fund and give donations and so on that you find it's becoming more and more difficult to raise funding even oh, yes. when you're providing such a vital humanitarian service. So we're kind of like in line with everybody else. But we try and keep our expenses down to a bare, bare minimum. Right. And so this is an ideal opportunity to even to sort of put it out there. We're always looking for for young uh, ILS ALS paramedics, that's intermediate and advanced life support paramedics right. that have rescue training and would like to, you know, would like to volunteer because uh, we don't pay, we cover the costs of getting to the incident and feeding and the insurances and so on. But everybody that does this work is it's for free. I mean, wow. we, we don't charge for, for doing a rescue. I mean, it's humanitarian. So Jeez. we are genuinely provide a humanitarian service at no charge. And I tell you, the the effect of weather in the world, it's the effect just along the east coast, should we say from, <clears throat> excuse me, coming down from Africa, mm. say almost Malawi, Zambia, Mozambique really badly, Madagascar, and then down to South Africa. This really has come down quite far this time. It's just getting worse and worse, and it's something that's. And if you look at the numbers and the amount of people that are affected, mm. I mean, the the economic impact on the whole region is just quite phenomenal. And uh, you know, and people like us because we're not alone. There are other other people that do rescue. Oh, thank goodness, you know, because there's so much work to be done that um, that that we just have to be so aware of the weather. Can we talk about that for Sorry. a second? Because uh, I, I was actually asked this by someone yesterday, and I find myself in the uncomfortable position of not knowing the answer. Uh, not that I'm expected to know the answer, but certainly you must have paid a lot more attention to this. Is this a, 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 a once every hundred years situation in Durban? Is it something that is as a result of, of compounding? Is it because... Durban isn't engineered to withstand that much water over that much time. Um, what is it that, that made all of this as bad as it is? Is it really worse than in previous years? I mean, we see the death toll. That alone should give us an indication that it's worse. 
But what is the truth of this? What's what? What are your guys who are currently on the ground in KZN telling you about the nature of this particular flood? Well, this is the worst flood I think they've ever experienced. But I would say, if you look at if you looked at the history of rescue South Africa in the in the beginning years, we went. We've been all around the world. We've been to Japan and Haiti, Philippines, India. You, so many countries which people can see on our website. But the last three or four or five years, all weather related. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt that global warming and uh, weather issues are becoming more and more prominent and more and more regular. So I would say that without being a scientist, that things are definitely getting worse and they are weather related and they are climate change related. So there's, this is probably, not is, it, it, it definitely is the most severe weather condition that's hit. So, yes, it, D- Durban has over the years been hit by heavy, heavy weather mm-hmm. and it has washed away things. It's an ideal opportunity now, and I hear the government speaking along that vein, is build back better. That's kind of one in emergency services, certainly internationally, that we like, a term we like to use, is if you're going to now start repairing, and fixing what now is broken is to try and build back better, uh, have <clears throat> maybe further away from flood lines, and um, and people take note of that. I know that over the years I worked in Alexandra Township for many years, and we had flooding there from time to time. And then you find the huts built right right up to the side of the river, and mm-hmm. when you try and convince people, look, you're in the floodplain. Right. Move back. It's just difficult to convince people. So, right. Which leads me. There's quite a there's quite a lot that you just said there, and and I don't want to spend too much time on the political side of this because unfortunately that's where everyone has an opinion, and we know about you know when everyone has an opinion, hardly ever does a problem get solved. But but you mentioned here like you know the the, the government build back better. Um, you mentioned how you know it's global warming and climate change has something to do with this, and and whether or not. That I'm not, I'm not going to dispute that that's the case. The fact is that if we're going to rely on government and governments all over the world to do this building back better, uh, we're in for a world of pain because I noticed that when the Solidarity Fund said that they were going to throw some money at this problem and help some of these people affected directly by the floods, everybody's immediate reaction was, oh, well, then it's just going to be stolen because the agencies, the government that is required to do the – the lawmaking and the execution of responsibilities in this vein. They're not the people who anyone trusts anymore. And in South Africa, we've got this massive trust deficit with government. So even if we acknowledge that climate change is a problem, if we acknowledge that it's about, you know, carbon emissions and we acknowledge that it's about trying to build back better, the fact is that the people that we trust to deal with these problems in government are not people that are trusted in this part of the world. And obviously this is not your fault or your problem, but it has a trickle-down effect. You were just talking earlier about donor fatigue and how people are just tired of it. I mean, here's Neil Mudley who says in the comments, the corruption has made me reluctant to donate to worthy causes. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. So all that government will do is say, Here's a carbon tax, but they won't reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. They can't control the weather. I mean, I'd love to think that Cyril was able to do even lesser things, but controlling the weather is something that he probably absolutely cannot do. What, What then is the solution on the big picture? And then we can talk some more about the, the individual 
people who are making such a difference in Rescue SA because I think that's where there is a, a real move forward and there are strides being made in the right direction. Yeah, okay, thanks. Uh, you know, that does open up some possibilities. So if, I, if one was to look at, say, the Japanese model where they took their 2011 disaster, the Great Northeast uh, Earthquake and Tsunami, if you were to go now and see that how they have built back better, there are ways and means if you, if you took those as examples uh, of what we could do. But there are other more practical, less expensive ways of attacking things, and I'm trying to convince uh, government and the private sector we should start teaching communities with outreach programs, outreach programs at Nelson Mandela University and Rescue South Africa are developing, where we can actually go into flood-prone areas and teach teach the population on how to deal with floods and what to look out for and how they can help themselves and how they can be part of the solution uh, as non-swimmers even who are not going to get in the water to do rescue mm-hmm. but can do a number of things from the shore and also to understand actually the dynamic a little bit of a river and where you can do things and where you shouldn't do things and what is possible. So outreach programs where we go and do education in rural South Africa in areas that are prone to this sort of thing can make a massive difference to the saving of lives because the minute you start educating educating people and teaching them about the dangers, you have the opportunity to convince them to even build their homes in more sustainable areas. So we've we've actually we've moved Rescue South Africa has in excess of sixty tons of specialized rescue equipment that wow. was sitting in Johannesburg for years. Mm-hmm. And what we decided to do is we've moved it to the port to Nelson Mandela University in Port Elizabeth. And we are now using that equipment firstly for training of there's a new medical school, I don't know if many people know, at Nelson Mandela University, state of the art by the way. And um it's the most modern, modern university. Um, and we have all the new paramedics that are being developed in their four-year BTEC degree course now do the modules of rescue. Mm-hmm. That, by the way, is at four, at four universities that's being taught just for people's interest and at some of the colleges so that the paramedics of tomorrow that come out of these institutions actually are also advanced rescue practitioners. So that way, this knowledge that we gained that – we brought out trainers from America in 2008, and those guys trained trainers in South Africa. And these guys have gone on to train literally thousands of South Africans to do this sort of rescue in emergency services. Mm. So we've moved down to the Eastern Cape because we realize what a need there is in the Eastern Cape. And part of the teaching is, yes, for the university students, but what we are trying to now do is raise a bit of funding to start our outreach so we can go into the communities it's all the way. If you start really looking at a map, you will see that the weather conditions are running all the way, almost from northern Mozambique down to George, where mm-hmm. even in George and Cape Town, for that matter, where yep. at different times you've, you see these little clips on TV and so on where boats are being used to go and take people off roofs or out of trees or whatever the case may be. And it's just for us, it's just a different location each time. But it's a similar, it's a similar type of rescue that we go to where 
and if I look at numbers and if I look at sort of stats, say if I took Mozambique and Byra and you start applying the amount of people that are affected, the schools that are affected, the roads that are affected, yeah. uh, the displaced people, the amount of people who lose their homes, you can probably, you can go and, you know, when you go to Natal after the dust is now settled there and you start actually quantifying, you're going to see that it's as dramatic as Byra was and all the others because unfortunately in the work that we do when we go to places their devastation is just beyond most people's imagination because it's of, of such a scale that you you almost cannot well you can't in your mind quantify it, you I'm know? very I'm very glad we've got people like you at Rescue SA and all those practitioners you were talking about earlier who are looking after people who who find themselves in these extreme weather situations who are in disaster areas, and I don't think that um, I don't think that humans are, are necessarily, you know, that smart when it comes to like where we build our houses and how we expect the the weather to always be pleasant. I mean, that's that's obviously something we have to take into consideration. But it's good to know that there are people who can help us in a in a tough situation. Uh, Bakabantu, you got any questions before we uh, we say goodbye to Ian? Uh, no, I just wanted to say, Ian, it's pretty commendable what you're doing, uh, giving people the tools to help themselves. I like the outreach thing you were talking about. Uh, I think that would have a real impact on the people and educating them, giving them the tools to save themselves instead of having people that come in and whatnot and not volunteer. Also, NGOs are the way of the future. Even though people have donor fatigue, they need to support more places like Rescue SA, uh, where can we volunteer, contribute, or do anything like that for you, Ian? So for us, firstly, go to our website and our bank details are there. So funding is, look, we're in partnership with Nelson Mandela University. So the outreach program that we will run is kind of, is very, will be very structured. Let me put it that way. And it will be done in collaboration with the university. So it adds a little bit of gravitas to it so that people have a sense of, of, of comfort, if I can put it that way, that the money is going to be spent where it's supposed to be spent. Right. That, that firstly, the volunteers that we would, the type of profile of a volunteer we're looking for is an ILS or an ALS paramedic. That's an intermediate or an advanced life support paramedic who has rescue uh, training so that the person that comes and does goes on a rescue has is able to multitask, They're able to provide medical attention to people that might need it, but can do rescue if where if and when necessary. So the the more combination of skills that you have into one person. <clears throat> the better off you are. So, however, that said, there are sometimes someone who could say fly a drone or do something that's quite specialised as a uh, as mm. a skill set to offer uh, are people that we would also look at. But right. the main type of person is a, a paramedic rescuer. Those are the sorts of. Well, I'm not looking for volunteers who just would like to come along and come and say oh, I'd like to come and help. It's dangerous work. <clears throat> a lot of the time, it's very, very dangerous. The guys that we work with are brave beyond brave. I mean, some of them yeah. will dive into those raging waters and go and pull people out. It's not for the faint-hearted, and it's not a holiday. It's really, really hard work. I mean, when you see those police officers, and unfortunately one of them passed away, uh, walking those rivers in, in extremely difficult conditions, um, it's kind of it's real hard work. So young, fit uh, People with a profile that I've described, those are the kind of wow. people that we're looking for.
Well, Ian, yep. please keep doing the keep doing the good work you're doing. Um, you can find out more by going to rescue-sa.co.za, um, and they have responded to natural disasters worldwide over the last 21 years. Um, it's a really great organization. It's good to have you on, and let's hope that the weather uh, is is kinder to us in the next few years. These these things can obviously get better or worse, but there's no way we can control it. And the most we can do is hope that we've got Rescue SA there to, to, to pull people out of, of, of really awful situations. Thank you, Ian. Good to see you. Thanks. And my number is also on the website. Please, people should feel free, free to phone me. This is for Thank me you. more than just a job. It's a passion. Thank you. Thank you and so thanks much. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Ian. Great to have you on. Wow. Um, you see, like Gift of the Givers, here's an organization that's doing good things. And I mentioned earlier that people are just, you know, they don't trust government. They don't, they don't believe mm. government will spend the money properly. Um, so your, your money is best sent to people like Ian and like Gift of the Givers who will make sure it goes to the people who are the real victims in this situation. It's amazing how ministers actually have to say now, well, uh, we promise we won't be corrupt, you know, and, and <laughs> it's just unbelievable. When it's uh, about corruption, there's only one name that comes to mind for me as a big stalwart fighter against corruption, someone who has dedicated his life, which, I mean, he, he had a cushy job. He had a, a really great career. He had all kinds of success in his life, and then he decided he's going to turn his attention to fighting corruption. And his name is Wayne Duvenage. He is a South African businessman, entrepreneur, civil activist. He's the CEO of the South African Corruption Fighting Civil Action Organization, one which I support too. They're called Outer Organization Undoing Tax Abuse. Outer are involved in fighting corruption and maladministration across all spheres of government in South Africa. It's a great pleasure to welcome him back to the show. How are you doing, Wayne? I'm well, Gareth. How are you guys? Nice to be with you today. Good. It's 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 really great that we have two people on today that I not only respect, but who are doing really tremendous work with, with Ian doing what Rescue SA does. And with you at Alta, how's Alta doing? How's how's everything going? The last time we spoke to you was in the middle of COVID. Yeah, yeah. Firstly, well done to Ian and his crew. Uh, we need more active citizens uh, like that. And uh gift of the givers teams that do incredible work but artists are, are doing well i mean it's um you know we've survived the uh, the fallout i think we expected quite a bit of fallout uh, uh, once the pandemic started because mm. because you know just uh, people were losing their jobs uh, having salaries cut and, and and that but but fortunately uh, they stayed the course with us uh, i think we had a bit of about six percent drop off we are purely crowdfunded as you know right um, and we watch that space and it's good because we have to be relevant to our supporters which is the man in the street um and uh yeah we've had uh we've had so much uh, on our plate in fact in this game there's just no shortage of work it comes at us so fast wow. the most frustrating thing gareth is to have to turn down and turn away projects of corruption which are so big and so real uh, yet we just don't have the capacity it's, uh, yeah. we've only got 45 well, staff it's you know uh, Bakabantu just said to, to Ian thank God for the NGOs that we have in this country and some of them are obviously much better than others but you know if I think about all the victories that have been handed down by courts across the country uh, against mm-hmm. people like Dudu Mieni we see the state capture commission going on we see the great work that people like Afri Forum and Sakalicha and Solidarity and Outer and so many others, the, 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 the Helen uh, Sisman Foundation. Uh, there, there are plenty of really great organizations who are 
non-political who are trying to get to why South Africa doesn't work as well as it should. It comes from a positive and optimistic point of view. It's like we could be doing this better, but we've got people in there whose hands are in the till. So mm. let's just have a little retrospective because it's nice for you to brag about the things that Alta has done. In the last two or three years, what are your, what are your major highlights and, and what kinds of things do you tell donors? Um, here's what your money's gone to. This is where we've had tremendous success. Go ahead and boast a little bit, Wayne. Well, you know, over the last six years, there's, there's been about 230 projects, as I last uh, recall. Sure. A lot of them very fast, small projects highlighting issues where we enact and in, in effect change that needs to happen. Others are quite big, like the Dudumnyeni uh, delinquent director case, which is quite precedent-setting. Mm. Uh, and, um, and we need to do more of those, but they're very expensive. That case costs several millions of rands. Uh, then we had the uh, the R2 matter, and and again, you know, when we interdicted and and, and halted R2, it was not because we don't agree with road safety. Uh, it was the same thing with the ETOL matter. You've got a government that has to introduce laws that are manageable, that are enforceable, that are that make sense, that are practical, and so often they don't. Um, and, and unless we challenge them, so so that uh, R2, uh, which is now regarded as unconstitutional, uh, is a matter that is still un unfolding, and we'll stay the course on that. Let's we just remind let's say. just remind everybody what that was. That's the, the the act that they tried to bring in, which would give you a point system, where basically, yeah. you know, it would be up to bureaucrats in 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 the system to decide whether or not you were able to drive a privately owned car, for example. Um, and a, and a point yeah. system, which also was linked to the toll roads, which was linked to all the other things that got you into Alta in the yeah. first place, right? Yeah, look, it was it, it's it's an administrative process, which is where a national body is trying to usurp the powers of local government and just drive this administration, which was just fraught with, with, with inefficiencies, it was never going to work. Uh, and, and you and I would become hostage to traffic police uh, with this point system, which was complicated. Yeah? Mm. You, and you've got to have good systems. The 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 uh, NATIS system has to be accurate for those uh, uh, other systems that feed off it to work, like ETOLs, like uh, uh, R2. So yeah, it's, right. it comes down to eventually that point system. So that that was uh, that was another big one. We stopped the. Uh, um, 1.8 billion rand uh, going through Bar Bank of Baroda uh, a while ago to the Guptas uh, for their for the Kornfontein mines that the mm -hmm. rehabilitation funds that sit in a trust account. We had to go to court to stop that money from flowing out the country. Uh, and then we're currently involved in trying to get Senral and the three long-distance toll concessions to be transparent about their earnings because we believe they are uh, making excessive profits out of you and I, the public, uh, and not that we don't believe in public-private partnerships or that those uh, concessions uh, should be profitable. But uh, when there's excessive profits, when they don't want to give us the contracts, when they hide all the numbers, then we smell a rat. So that's a big project unfolding right now, and Senral is doing everything they can to keep that information out of our hands. So that's a warning sign. So yeah, the list the list goes on. We've got a big one that we'll be announcing uh, this time next week on Thursday. We're going to court to 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 deal with the car power ships matter. Uh, that is that is you don't want to know what this country will be encumbered with from a cost point of view uh, in in generating uh, energy through these gas uh, powered ships. 
um, if that if that allow, is allowed to happen. I, so I, that's, I'm, uh, I must plead ignorance on this one. What what is this all about? So what's happened is nurses granted car, car power ships, the uh, the Turkish uh, operator, to to put these three ships in one in uh, Richards Bay down in Cape Town and 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 PE I think in the ports to provide to mitigate the energy constraints we've got. But it is the worst option. It's probably five times more expensive than other options which the modeling from our experts show is the right way to go, uh, to introduce renewables a lot quicker and faster and to, to deal with this issue in a far better way and different way. They've, they've just run roughshod over, over applying their minds to this. And if we allow it, it's like that nuclear deal, well, yeah. in, in, in a similar vein that, we, that, that civil society had to stop uh, the, the Earth Life Africa and SAFSI people down in Cape Town about five years ago. I don't know if you remember that with Jacob yep. Zuma trying to get Rossetom to bring in nuclear. Right. It would have encumbered us. It would have killed us. This is a similar thing, not as bad as that, but it's very bad. <laughs> it's amazing how this, uh, this, this corruption pops its head up just about everywhere. Um, oh. <laughs> Bakabantu, I know you've got some questions too for Wayne, but let's talk, let's uh, talk about some of the, the, the areas that you're most concerned about because there's so many places we could start. Uh, <laughs> Well, you, yeah, me. you go ahead, yeah. Oh, no, my question, uh, I actually wanted to bring up this ship that's going to be parked in Cape Town to outsource our electricity. It is the worst idea. So we create a problem <laughs> with ESCOM, and our solution is to get another guy to come and fix it. It was it just smelt of corruption. I'm glad someone is on it. Uh, I, I don't know a lot about it, but I read an article about it. But, yeah, it's terrible. But outer... Ata, Ata does great work. I remember you guys fighting the to the e tolls. I'm glad that stopped. Or oh, do people still have their e tags? Do people? Like, you stop that, yeah, that fight? That's, that's actually good. Do, that's a good question. Like your, because, your origins? Are you guys still back? Uh, or did you yeah. win the e toll I mean, fight? One of the ways. Let's just uh, throw in this this proviso as well. One of the ways that you got a huge amount of support financially was from people who knew that if they backed you. They would that that you know that that basically the the Sanrel people in the government wouldn't be able to go after individuals and pick them off, because if you were part of Alta, Alta would have stood up for for everybody, mm-hmm. and um and and obviously Etols most of us have carried on without worrying about it. But is it gone? Is it actually out of the way? Is it off the table completely? Yeah, good question. Uh, pretty much so. Yes, Gareth. Although they formally haven't declared the roads non-tolled roads again, that's what we have to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to uh, get them to undo that bad decision. But but effectively, government has abandoned the summons process, or Sanral has. We were in court. We were preparing to go to court uh, with against them. We had uh, I think close on three thousand. Uh, members of the public that we were representing in what we call this collateral challenge uh, to, to, to bring this case against Sanral. And eventually they realized they were, they were never going to do this. The courts were saying, you cannot bring this problem here. And how do you stop people from driving, from having the freedom to drive on the roads um, through this you know, just mind-blowing, inefficient, uh, expensive, fraught with corruption scheme. Yeah. So they still send out the bills. The <laughs> uh, government still hasn't made the decision and undone that uh, decision. Uh, so we will continue to fight that until that decision happens. But for all intents and purposes, if you get a summons, send it on to us. It'll be extremely rare. A lot of people are getting final demands to pay. Uh, but I think uh, anyone who's paying now is, is crazy. It's a handful of businesses. 
Um, not even all the government departments are paying the ETOL bills, by the way. They can't afford it. Uh, but it's, a, it's just a few businesses who could quite frankly make money out of the – because they had administration fees and they make money out of charging the bills like the car rental companies and, wow. and the leasing companies and so on. Yeah. And so there are still enough people paying it for them to keep sending out the bills. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Only just. Only just. There's about uh, between 15 and 18% of people paying, and that raises about 50 to 55 million rand a month. Uh, which goes to paying for the collection process. All they're doing is nothing's going into the tarmac or into the bonds. It's just paying the people who are collecting the money. And we think one of the reasons why they're taking so long to pull that plug is there's a few million in that 50 to 55 million a month that is going where it shouldn't be going because uh, why else would you just uh, charge to, to, to pay for the charging process? It just doesn't make sense. So I'm, I mentioned in the introduction that um – with KZN and what's going on over there, immediately people sprang to, and this is ordinary members of the public. It's not some interest organization where people are being paid to say horrible things about government. But we saw what happened with COVID. Um, you know, a lot of these PPE funds were, were stolen by people. Even people inside the president's own office were involved in this. Zuelim Kiza has now been exonerated by the Ethics P- Committee in, P- in Parliament, but that does not mean that he didn't have anything to do with his son benefiting directly from a digital vibes contract. Everywhere you go, I mean, Batabile Dlamini was just in court recently. It wasn't necessarily corruption, but in her case, it was just complete incompetence. Everywhere you go, you see examples of how the governments have betrayed the public trust. And this is the core of what you guys do at Alta, because for those of us who are chutful, and that's 90% of the population, we've already given up on government. We've already given up on the fact that they're the ones who are going to rescue us. How do, how do you begin to address this and, and stand up for yourselves and for the public without being labeled as being, you know, negative, uh, pessimistic, mm. Uh, the, the part of the problem people, all of that stuff, because that's obviously the, the weak, but the first defense that comes up against yeah. what you do. How do you, how do you respond yeah. to that stuff in the press? So it's, it's, a, it's a big position that you, you put there. I think the first starting point, Gareth, and you're quite right, is that, is that um, this country's potential is immense. I mean, I often quote along these lines that uh, you can get in a plane in Europe and overnight be in South Africa and what we should have far more than what we do give mm. is just an incredible experience of our nation, of of the diversity, the, the, the beautiful country that we have, the people, the resources. Uh, we're punching so well below our weight and yet we have around, I don't know, I think a tenth of Australia's tourism where you have to fly across the world and they've got a rock and a kangaroo and a barrier reef, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. you know? So we've got so much going for us, uh, and we should be teaming with tourism. The price of the rand where it is, and with our resources, the mining industry, and, and what do we do is, is we, we have a government that is failing on every front. We have people coming out of schools that are unemployable. Uh, our, yeah. our education system is, yeah. is one of the worst in Africa. Uh, let alone the world, uh, uh, hospitalization security. So so why is that? Well, it's because we have a, an extremely corrupt government uh, a, 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 through the ruling party that has an, an inability to hold people to account and that has taught and allowed this 
this this prolification of uh, proliferation, sorry, of of, um, uh, of this impunity that you can plunder, you can get into your hands through your families and friends and contracts, uh, get your fingers on the into the cookie jar and help yourselves, uh, and just do the bare minimum to get by so that the, the lights try and stay on and the water yeah. keeps flowing in these municipalities. And it goes right down to local government. The only way you fix that, the only way is to introduce real accountability. And, and that's why we're frustrated. We've got good laws. We've got the best laws. We've now got the right teams like Shamila Betoy and the NPA and that, but they're hamstrung. They, we need to do. Do you think? Do you, do you really thought. think? Shim, I'm not going to let that one go because it's just something that comes up all the time on the show. Do you really think Shamila Batoy is doing a good job? Do you really think she's doing the best she can? I mean, a lot of people, I, I including including me and Pumi, and pretty much all of our guests that we've ever had on the Burning Platform, have all said this woman's sitting on her hands. Well, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I think um, I think Hermian Cronier was doing a lot of that with the in, independent directorate, uh, yeah. um, investigative directorate. Sorry, uh, and and Shamila, uh, you know, I, it's a combination of I think you 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 have a point that there is um, there is a leadership issue potentially, but there's a capacity issue. There's a decimation in that uh, within that organisation, and what we need to be doing, what the, the Ramaphosa needs to be doing is everything it can to supercharge that organization. Because must remember, every day they're dealing with rape, crime, uh, fraud, corruption, more stuff coming in, and they're trying to deal with 10 years of past corruption. So you need to inject 10 years of crime fighting into that organization, SIU, Assets Forfeiture Unit, in order to catch up. Uh, They could have had and they should have had a lot of these uh, big cases uh, done by now. I agree with you 100%. I mean, we get frustrated. We work with them. We give them a lot of good information. And um, it needs to be supercharged. We need corruption courts. We need a totally different focus on dealing with corruption. And and the state is dragging its feet in, in, in that space. Wayne, so, but on, I mean, on, on that issue, long way f- sorry, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's just occurred to me now on that issue. Are you are you at all? Um, are, are, are you? Are you enthused? Are you inspired by anything that's going on at the State Capture Commission? I mean, there's so much ugliness being uncovered there. Some of it maybe is yeah. not surprising to you because you see so many of these projects yeah. land on your desk. But but are you pleased to see that there is some activity there? Are you are you hoping for more? Like, what's your what's your stance on the whole State Capture Commission and Judge Zondo? Well, it was it was excellent. It was very necessary because until then it was, you know, media statements put down as hearsay and agendas, political agendas. But so so what happens is the State Capture Commission comes along, took a bit longer and it cost a bit more, but worth every cent and minute. And it really colored in and painted the picture clearly of what went down. Now, the beauty of a State Capture Commission, it's real, it's there, it's a it's it's not something that anybody can poo-poo. There's a report and yeah. recommendations. Our, our job now as society is to make sure it doesn't gather dust. Uh, and, and, and of course, we, we, we said to the NPN that they should be acting concurrently while that's happening. Take the evidence, start charging. They tended to, I think, rest on the fact that they wanted to get more detail and wait to the end. Well, now there's no excuse. So they've, they've got to get moving, and we know and believe they are. But they are still far beyond and behind where they should be. But it's far better than, than, than having the Sean Abrams of the worlds in that institution where we would oh, have wow. gone backwards, would have been Good dead point. as a country. Yeah, we've forgotten yeah. about Sean Abrams. We've forgotten about some of those Zuma deployees who, you know, some of them are still hanging around, but many of them, thank God, are out of the way. 
yeah, 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 definitely. You know, so all in all, you know, Gareth, we've got to get uh, the one big uh, project we're also working on right now is electoral reform. What you don't want to have in 2024 is people sitting in Parliament again that were put there uh, through lists that were gathered in back rooms uh, instead of being put there by you and I, people who are voting for, mm-hmm. whether it's an ANC or EFF or DA a member for a constituency so that we put those people into Parliament, not uh, the the political leaders uh, that that you know force them to pander to their political whims, that's what electoral reform is about. It's been a discussion for a long time. The courts ordered two years ago for Parliament to sort this out. They haven't. They've been dragging their feet because they know it's going to be a game changer. So while we're not a political party, we try and we ask ourselves what can we do to influence change that has to happen. Because what you do have to get in this country are people that, A, the right people for the job, competent, trained, qualified, uh, and that are not politically compromised. If you fix that, and then you introduce absolute transparency and accountability, we will turn this country around. And that's the journey that I think we're all on to fight because we believe in this sure. country and its people. Well, from uh, your from your comes. mouth to God's ears, really. <laughs> that's all we can say. But how much of a role does the media play in this? because they have not covered themselves in glory. The media seems to enjoy a corruption story when it's guaranteed to get them clicks, but they very seldom actually take a stance on, you know, really important issues. They'd they'd prefer to throw stones and mud at either opposition parties, NGOs, give government a free pass some of the time. And, And I wonder what's going on there. Do you sometimes look at the media and think they could be doing more too? You know, it's an interesting one. Uh, I, th- I think, firstly, Gareth, the the free media and for the ability for our media to do and say and, and expose what they do is is we've got to we've got to really cherish that. In many countries, this doesn't happen. Sure. Uh, in Turkey, if we were exist, trying to do our work in some of the media in, in a country like Turkey, I know you'd be in uh, jail. Zimbabwe, you'd be in. You'd you'd go to jail. Yeah. Oh. So, <clears throat> so I think the. You're quite right. Media is chasing stories, and and that's the issue. It's headlines today, and it's gone tomorrow, which is why uh, so much just continues. I mean, why Dudumnyeni was behaving the way she said, "Oh, fine, I'm in the headlines today, but but this will be forgotten tomorrow because they're chasing another story." That's and true. That's where civil society comes in. We've got to take those stories, get the facts, work with whistleblowers, and start holding government's feet to the fire. So there's the symbiotic relationship. I think it's a healthy one, and there's some really good media out there, and there's some poor media as well. But I think the good wins, and social media then comes and throws a whole new dynamic into the mix where you know you just don't know what to believe sometimes. Yeah. Well, um, what's on the agenda coming uh, coming up? Because um, for those people who are not yet members of Arta who want to maybe join, or for those people who are already members, they they want to know what's happening. You, you're accountable to them, just like you expect the government to be accountable. What projects have you got lined up, and what are you able to to start telling us about now? Well, we've got a, a, about 38 projects open at any one time uh, at the moment. As I said, we've closed off a, a number of them. Uh, the, the, the car power ships is a big one that's happening right now. The electoral reform that's happening, driver's licenses. We're trying to follow the money when it comes to when you renew your vehicle license. Um, so the RTMC is not being transparent around where does the money go. If you want to book to have your vehicle ownership changed or to buy your license online through RTMC, 
we pay an extra two to three hundred percent more. We want to know where's that money going. Hmm. Uh, we're pushing government to extend the driver's license validity period from five to ten years. We've done research; it just doesn't make sense. Right. That alleviate the pressure right now. We want to understand the procurement of the driver's license card machines. We're looking at the revenues that uh, these various government entities are earning and going after them. Working with the Auditor General to find out why is there so much waste. Um, why are these salaries that they're paying? You saw that uh, with Jeff Chewy, uh, I think it was at the RTMC yes. or the uh, Road Traffic Infringement Agency, where where his salary went up from three point seven million in one year to ten ten million in you know, a massive bonuses. So you're getting these little empires that are being built within these various government departments that have got a certain amount of autonomy, and they start making a lot of money off the t- taxpayer. Uh, and then they just start finding creative ways to spend it. That has to stop. Uh, we, we're introducing an interesting um, platform called CAN, uh, the Community Action Network, which empowers residents associations and community associations yeah. to hold their local government to account. So we must stop moaning and building our walls higher and fixing our own potholes and get the municipality to do their work and take them to court if they don't. And then another exciting platform we're launching is the Water Can, the Water Community Action Network, where citizens and civil society becomes the owners of the data and the information around the quality of our water in our rivers and reservoirs around the country because we cannot rely on government anymore, right. uh, on their information, on the accuracy of it. And the laws are very strong with water. If a municipal manager allows the sewage works to pump raw sewage into rivers, that is a criminal offense and we'll take them to jail. The problem is, as citizens, we don't get involved, test the water. So we're putting in place a whole platform and strategy to do that. It's called citizen science. We're also seeing that government's starting to want to work with us because they're realizing they're losing control of this data. And that's Mm -hmm. good. But we will, not, we will own the data and not them. And uh, if anybody wants to go, including government, to find out what the quality of the water is like in this country in the next few years, they'll go to the outer site, not to their own sites. And that's an exciting project, uh, Gareth. There's just so much Terrific. happening. Really is exciting place uh, um, to work at, at Arta with an amazing team. But, but we can't get to everything. We should be double our size. So thanks for the invitation just to put out there, you know, I, I always say forego the price of a hamburger, the cost of a hamburger right. once a month and, and sign on at outer.co.za. We've got a very easy sign up. We need every rand. And I think people mustn't think that, well, what's the difference? What difference will my hundred rand a month make? Everything counts in crowdfunding. Superb work that you're doing. It's always good to check in with you, Wayne, and uh, keep up the good fight. Listen, this is not something that you can win on your own. It's not something that any of us can do on our own. We have to come together to do it. And the nice thing about coming together to do it with our turn and with, with the, the kinds of people you've got on board, little things like, and I mean, I say little, but it's a huge thing, like the quality of our water, the rivers, this idea of citizen science. This is doable. Yeah, I must uh, tell you, it's such an exciting project that, Gareth, and maybe uh, in time you want to get uh, Dr. Ferrell Adams, who's joined our team uh, and heading up that water can project. Incredible woman. Uh, The project is so exciting, and we want citizens to come on board. We'll train them, uh, put them into a platform, get local businesses in each town to fund these little projects, uh, and with local communities, you know, all communities working together like they did in Makanda 
where the where the indigent communities and the ratepayers get together and tackle local government. It's so yes. nice to see collaboration like that working. That's what we've got to do more of. I love it. Keep inspiring people to do that in their own neighborhoods as well. And well done yeah. to, to both of our guests this morning for the great work they do and the, and the way that you can get involved, too, in both of these organizations. Rescue SA earlier with Ian Scher, uh, rescue-sa.co.za. And now, Wayne, who is with Outer, you can find out more by going to outer.co.za. Wayne, so great to see you. Keep well. We'll speak to you again soon. Lovely stuff. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good show. Huh? Cheers, cheers. So it's uh, Bakabantu and I, and we've been uh, hopefully keeping you uh, company to your heart's desires this morning. We hope to bring you a whole lot more tomorrow morning. Don't forget that it's a, a short week next week as well. We've got the 27th, which is Freedom Day. That's on a Wednesday. And the week after, the um, the holiday, which is on the Sunday, falls on the Monday. That's Workers' Day. So two more short weeks ahead of you. And uh, tomorrow is Friday already. It feels like we just started the week. <laughs> It's been, it's been a long one, Gareth. Yeah. But I just wanted to, just on closing, Gareth, it's great to see someone who's seen the underbelly and the dark side of South African mm. corruption who's still so optimistic like Wayne. Yeah. He he just resumed optimism. He's like, South Africa's so great. We have so much potential. I'm like, yo, dude, I am defeated by this country and I'm 25 years old, mm-hmm. but you have seen the actual documents and you are still hopeful that we can yeah. turn it around. That's That's really powerful. Yeah, I mean, listen, the, today may have been a different show because Pumi wasn't here, but it was also different because we're just giving a little bit of credit to those people who are doing the heavy lifting in society, and, and thank God they are. Otherwise, you'd be really screwed. Just two quick things I want to mention here. Uh, first of all, there's this story which has been going on, which we haven't paid attention to. Rosemary Ndlovu, you know this person who's been in mm-hmm. court for the last while? She's a former police officer who tried to have like five people killed. She, she she went after her station commander, uh, the person who was investigating her. She paid people to actually kill these colleagues of hers. This is a really, really sick human being. Rosemary and Dlovo, and it's an interesting story. So if you've, you've been following it, maybe we can pick it up tomorrow, talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that. also found this graph, which I thought might interest some people. This is how living arrangements have changed over the last couple of years. And this is since 1967. So not even that long ago probably in living memory for anyone who's older than 45 or 50 years old. But look at this. It's phenomenal. It shows a couple of lines. Living with parents or relatives has gone up from 12.9% in 1967 to 28.9% in 2021. So more people are living with their parents or relatives than they did before. Living alone has stayed more or less the same. Living with a partner has gone up, but only nominally. Living with a spouse has come down. This is the scary one. So from 82.7% of people of the age 25 to 34 in the United States, 1967, 82.7% of those people lived with their spouse. Do you know what the number is now? 37.5. So... That's a huge drop off. Massive, That's, uh, massive drop. The rest have been more or less the same. There's a lot more people living with man. their parents, but you know, it's been in the same sort of area between 10 and 20%. This is unbelievable. And if you're wondering about society and where we're headed as a society, this is something to throw into the pot. 25 to 34-year-olds in the United States measured over the last 50 yeah. years, this is phenomenal. 82.7% of them used to live together with their spouse. Now, 
only 37% of people in the United States between 25 and 34 live with their spouse. Can I throw out a wild idea here, Gareth? Mm -hmm. So what if, uh, because things have changed, right? So we look at the 82% and now it's 30. What if it's just marriage has dropped off? Not necessarily... Uh, not necessarily that people are the getting divorced and, and it's a sure. bleak outcome. Yeah, it's just that uh, before, in the olden days, you were programmed to get a job, get married, and all that. But now mm-hmm. the world has moved. And I read the partner one as more of a graph showing the, how gay people are living together and how it's becoming more accessible. I don't but know. Am I being too optimistic well, that's here? A, that's only, if you look back at it, it's only gone up a little bit by comparison. But yeah. So it's not as if. You've swapped living with a spouse for living with a partner. Well, the so partner I, I, yeah. I mean, just in a, in, you know, on basic statistical grounds, your theory isn't really that good because <laughs> if people just weren't getting married, but they were still living with a partner, then living with a partner would have gone up more than 0.2% to yeah. 16.8. It would have made up the difference that we've lost with living with a spouse. So it means that more people are either single and not even in relationships, that might be true. It could also mean that people are getting married much later than 34, which is quite mm. something to think about, especially if you consider that you know beyond 34, the expectation of people having children is reduced substantially. There's just there's a lot that this graph tells me that we need to unpack, and I want to maybe look at it from um, tomorrow morning's show on. It's worth giving a second glance to the living arrangements. I wonder what the facts are for South Africa. I wonder how many people are still living, <laughs> still living with their parents in their 30s. I wonder how many people in South Africa are not living with anyone else. I wonder how many people are. And it, there's, a, there's a line for living alone, and that's more or less yeah. the same, you know. Uh, th- those bottom ones haven't changed a lot. It's, it's two that have changed a lot. Living with parents or relatives has gone up, and living with your spouse has gone down significantly down. in both cases. Yeah. I want to know what you yeah. think of that, and maybe we'll talk about it tomorrow. So let's get into that tomorrow. It's worth the discussion. All right. That's all we got time for today, though. It is 8 o'clock. I hope you have an excellent, what is it today? Thursday, the 21st of April. And we will see you tomorrow morning, bright and early at 6 o'clock. We'll make sure we start on time, I promise. Cheers, everybody. Bye. Oh, by the way, if I get a if I get an update on Pumi, I'll give it to you tomorrow. But she seems like she's okay. She messaged me, and she's just feeling a bit sick. If you're wondering where she was for the show this morning, we'll get an update from her. And I'll fill you in tomorrow morning. Cheers, everyone. Have a good day. Bye.